0: Hey everyone, hope you're all enjoying your August. Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you from the Podcast.com. Today is sort of the next chapter in a series that include episodes 45, 46, and 48, where we looked at the immediate aftermath of the Xinhai Revolution, the May 4th Movement, and the founding of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Then we did a little podcast on Sir Run -run Run-Shaw, and we looked at Taoism the past few episodes, Today we're going to sort of pick up after 1921, where we see China once again enjoying one of those periods of disunity again. From the fall of the Qing in 1911 until Mao does his thing on the podium at Tiananmen in October 1949, China is hardly the single political entity it was under the Qing. The first half of the 1920s in China was mostly defined by the Uneasy coalition in the south of China between the nationalists led by Sun Yat-sen and the communists, and the guiding spirit manipulating both the KMT and CCP to the very best of their political and strategic advantage were the Russian Soviet advisors who took their cue from the Comintern. Then in the north of China, an array of warlords all held sway over their particular turf Some are more well-known than others, and we'll get to them in a minute. These were the Roaring Twenties. While China was still trying to find its way in the modern world, Hitler and Mussolini were starting to both ramp up their power and lay the groundwork for world conflict. It was the Jazz Age in the U.S. with Prohibition, Al Capone, and bootleg liquor. The Pahlavi Dynasty came to power in Iran, which I guess in retrospect, laid the seeds for the Iranian Revolution half a century later, in our lifetimes. Lenin died, not John Lenin, V.I. Lenin, and now Stalin was in control in Russia. King Tut's tomb was discovered. It was also a storied time in Shanghai, and the legends of all the pleasures and evils that came out of 1920s Shanghai still fascinate people to this day. So after 1921 we have the formal establishment of the Communist Party in China. Thanks to all the injustices of the past and then energized by the spirit of the May 4th movement, now we have a real, living, breathing Communist Party. Now, in the early 20s, and remember, Sun Yat-sen is gone in March 1925 from cancer, but he's spending his uh, last years actively seeking and getting Russian support and, you know, duplicity, of course, but that was the name of the game. And what Russia was insisting, in their infinite wisdom, was that sun back in alliance between the nationalists, that's the KMT, the guomindang and the CCP, the communists. And this is what sort of defined the years from 1922 to 1927. No matter how many gestures were made to show goodwill, it, it was nothing but a sham. The nationalists could never agree with the communists, and the feelings were mutual on the communist side. The fundamental maodun, or contradiction, was just, it was just too great. Today we can look back and ask, what were these guys thinking? There was no way you could get these two strange bedfellows, the KMT and the CCP, to work together. They were both completely in lockstep with regard to their desire to rid China of these powerful and self-serving warlords. This they agreed on. They both were in complete agreement with regard to the unequal treaties going back to the 1840s. Those had to be abolished. And both recognized the need for getting rid of the imperialist powers, and they were also in agreement on the need for nation-building and reforming China so that the great nation could resume its rightful spot in the world. The nationalists envisioned the country being ruled by the elites of society, if you will, These would be the educated, those who came from the property class and who had become somebody or in the military. Well, the CCP thought the complete opposite. They believed that once everything was put back in order, China would be led by the workers and the peasants. And of course, the whole concept of perpetual revolution and class struggle was not anything that Sun Yat-sen had in mind. So everyone pretended to get along for the time being. The Wampoa Military Academy, the Huangpu Junxiao, was set up in 1924, and the head guy there was none other than Jiang Kai shek. This is where Jiang gets his big break and starts to become something in China. And using his supreme position at the academy, Jiang slowly began to accumulate alliances with you know, like minded officers, and he carefully built a little power center with him in the middle. The CCP was also very much involved in this premier military academy in China. Zhou Enlai was a teacher at the Wampoa Academy. So was the immortal Ye Jianying. Graduates of the Wampoa Military Academy included Lin Piao and Xu Xiangqian. The intended purpose of the academy was to create a new revolutionary army for the salvation of China. Several of the military men associated with the academy from both the KMT and CCP went on to play leading roles in the civil war conflict in China that followed the conclusion of World War II. So as I was saying, Jiang started to build a power base in the military, and the communists, they seemed satisfied just to dominate political affairs, and they lived to regret that later, but that's another story. Sun Yat-sen was sort of the glue or the chemical that sort of held this unholy alliance between the CCP and KMT together. But once he dies in March 1925, it's over and everyone starts sharpening their knives. Jiang Kai-shek, he paid lip service to Sun's alliance and loyalty to Russia, but as we all know, Jiang was a an extremely suspicious kind of guy and couldn't trust the CCP any further than he could throw them, and the only strong feelings he had for the Russians was in his utter dislike of them. Again, keep in mind in the early 1920s, there's no single China. The north of China is under the thumb of the ultra-conservative warlords, namely Zhang Zolin and my favorite, the Christian general, Feng Yuxiang. Now, these guys were always switching sides depending on how the wind was blowing at the time. There were other warlords who controlled the north from Gansu to Manchuria. Zhang Zolin's power base was in Manchuria. The south of China was under the control of the KMT-CCP alliance and was naturally the more revolutionary part of China. The nationalist government had its capital in Guangzhou at this time, and although it would later be moved to Wuhan, a city known as not the most conservative place in the world. Remember, it was the Wu uprising that overthrew the Qing dynasty. The city name of Wuhan is made up of the three districts of Hankou, Hanyang, and Wuchang. May 30th, 1925, we have the Wusa Yundong, the May 30th movement. Not to be confused with the May 4th movement, this uh, May 30th movement was a popular mass movement in China that involved labor and anti-imperialist forces. It all began in the wake of Sun's death in March 1925 and the outpouring of grief a combination of courage mixed with dissent sort of wafted through the labor movement. Of course, egged on by the communists and their organizers in the movement. The Chinese working class in the 1920s wasn't much different than any other group of workers in pre-labor reform times. The same old problems with wages, nowhere to air grievances, unsafe working conditions, you know, the usual suspects that all workers faced, no matter in China or England. So May 30th, a dozen or so student protest organizers got arrested. This is in Shanghai in the international settlement. The arrested protesters were taken to the local police station and booked. But even in these pre-Twitter days, word spread fast about their arrest. And before you know it, one of these Spontaneous actions just kicks in and events start spiraling out of control with more protesters than you could count screaming outside the police station and intimidating the hell out of the policemen and clerks on duty at the time. And they demanded the release of the arrested protesters. And of course, the British who controlled the police station there were defiant and you know told them all to bugger off in so many words. Events came to a head when the mob became so unruly and the Sikh and Chinese policemen, who had the unfortunate fate of being on duty that day, they opened fire into the crowd, and as many as four were killed, and a dozen or more injured. This is just what the Chinese needed. Just as the May 4th movement galvanized the nation, so did this incident on May 30th, 1925. And over the next week, all Chinese-owned businesses were on strike in Shanghai, And for sure, the workers showed solidarity and put down their tools. This general strike spread to other cities in China, as well as to Hong Kong. Matters down south were particularly heated after British troops opened fire on demonstrators in Guangzhou, killing 52. These protests and acts of defiance lasted for about half a year until the merchant class started going back to business as usual, and things began to settle down, to some semblance of normalcy in China. The protests and strikes lasted a little longer in Hong Kong until they, too, sort of petered out. But the point had been made, and any foreign businessman from that point onward had to feel somewhat uneasy about the perils of doing business in China during these initial years after the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917. The May 30th movement sort of gave everyone their first good whiff of the change that was coming in China. The Communist Party milked the situation for all it was worth, and the ranks of members soared from about a 1,000 to over 30,000. This May 30th movement was the big chance the CCP was waiting for to flex their muscles and stir up revolutionary feelings amongst the oppressed working class organizational skills were honed, and a great deal of respect was won for the CCP leadership. Now that Sun Yat-sen was gone, the power struggle began between the right and left wing of the KMT. And then the CCP was also right in the middle of all that, too. The Russians tried to bring the KMT left closer to the CCP and sort of meld them into a single party to challenge the rightists of the KMT, but this didn't work out. One of China's early revolutionary heroes going back to the days of the Tongmenghui was Wang Jingwei. Now, he's a pretty important historical figure, and I haven't mentioned him yet. When you're talking about the Republic of China era on the mainland, Wang Jingwei is a giant, and we're going to focus on him on a future podcast. He's today very much vilified for his Turncoat ways and how he collaborated with the Japanese and turned on the communists. But he was a potential successor to Sun and had served the father of the nation very well in Japan and in Guangzhou. He had all the charisma, revolutionary stripes, and background that would make him a natural leader in China. He sort of got overtaken by events, and when his moment came, he didn't rise to the occasion. Despite Despite all the close cooperation there was, there was still every day a never-ending behind-the-scenes struggle going on between the leftist-leaning elements and the conservative wing of the KMT. You had the KMT left, who was basically being used by the CCP to infiltrate and destroy the wing of the KMT, controlled by Chiang Kai-shek and his people, who would be considered the right wing of the KMT. Jiang and his most trusted followers were the guys who thought, well, after everything is taken care of, after all the warlords are defeated and China is all under one umbrella again, after all the foreigners have been dealt with and China has its face back, the good old traditional ways of ruling in China would come back and everyone would live happily ever after and he'd be the chief executive of the whole operation. In his vision, where Jiang was coming from, It would have been unthinkable to put anything less than the elites of politics and the military in control of the government. I mean, that's just the way it had to be. They had all the money, geopolitical connections, education, sophistication. Going back to recorded Chinese history, how often was it when the oppressed class would revolt, seize power, and go on to build something? You know, there were plenty of regional successes, but on a national level... All the action in China invariably took place at the top among the power elites. The Liu Bangs and Zhu Yuanzhangs were very few and far between. The communists thought the total opposite. The power elites, in their most secret of secret spots in their mind, were going to be the first ones to feel their wrath. The power elites from the most common landlord up, we're going to be in for a very hard time once the CCP took over. They knew this. So you can see there was going to be absolutely no way to reconcile these two frames of mind. All this talk about class warfare that the leftists would always spout just scared the heck out of the educated and moneyed class who had a lot riding on keeping things the way they were at the moment. So for the time being, they all pretended to get along and they all took their funds from the common turn. But Jiang was starting to see his power slowly eroding around the edges, and he saw how effective the communists were. To Jiang, they were just one big dangerous contagion. Say what you want, but man, the CCP cadres, they knew how to organize and get everybody on the same page and acting in unison. And after all, how hard was it to win converts to the CCP cause? In the 1920s, there was a seemingly... Unlimited number of oppressed, angry, and downtrodden Chinese that would naturally sympathize with the CCP over the KMT. And you could say this about the 1930s and 40s as well. Jiang, well, he had no choice. It hadn't even been five years since he took that post as commandant at the Wampoa Military Academy. Events during this time moved very fast for him. 1922 to 1926, 1927, these were rather... Action-packed years for Chiang Kai-shek, and he had a lot of things on his mind. Jiang went along with this whole doomed alliance because he needed Russia's money still and all the benefits of their experience. The next big milestone in the history of the 1920s in China was the launch of the Northern Expedition in July 1926. Chiang Kai-shek is the top military leader and the man in charge. The CCP's role in this great cooperative effort to unify China was to do what they did best, organize the peasants and the workers and winning them over to their cause and obtaining their support in the war effort. They took care of all the front-end political work, and they did a masterful job. The objective of the Northern Expedition was to knock out basically three main guys, Zhang Lin, who controlled the north of China, and the two guys in the south in the Yangtze River region. Wu Peifu and Sun Quanfang. These two generals controlled what was known as the Zhe Li clique. That's uh, Wu and Sun. To make a long story short, the Zhe Li clique was a breakaway faction of the Beiyang army who became a force to be reckoned with in central China. And you'll all remember the Beiyang army from the Uh, Yuan Kai podcast. So the KMT's Northern Expeditionary Forces leave Southern China and totally knock these two guys out of the game. So the two easiest ones were now neutralized. Jiang made his first move against the communist allies in March 1926. It all began with the discovery of an alleged plot against Chiang Kai-shek. Jiang was shown evidence that the CCP were knee-deep in this conspiracy. So what does he do? He declares martial law in Guangzhou and rounds up a bunch of Soviet advisers and communist political advisors in the army. Wang Jingwei gets wind of this, he leaves China, and now he is the sworn enemy of Chiang Kai-shek and his allies. But Wang, for the most part, after being outmaneuvered, simply leaves for Hong Kong and then for France, and once he's gone, the left-leaning elements of the KMT and the CCP lose a stalwart ally. So now, with such a prestigious voice as Wang Jingwei silenced, Jiang starts aggressively stacking the deck against the CCP. He comes out with all kinds of rules that say no one can, you know, like, for example, no one can criticize Sun Yat-sen or his policies, of which Jiang was now the clear successor to. A CCP membership in the KMT Central Committee, you know, could not exceed a certain minority number. You know, little by little, CCP members were forced out of any position of power or authority in the government, and they were replaced with KMT people. And in the military as well, where the CCP had inserted all their political advisors that were meant to influence the hearts and minds of the soldiers, they too were one by one forced out. Jiang was slowly weeding the garden of communists and clearly had something up his sleeve. Now, Jiang was a wily politician while he was making all these overt moves against his ccp enemies he was also making all kinds of conciliatory statements to the russians and you know assuring them of his complete and total support of the you know russo-chinese partnership and his faith in the coalition remember since 1922 at the urging and the cajoling of the russians you had this you know you had this alliance between the ccp and the kmt how it worked was ccp members They still retain their Communist Party membership and continue to build the party. But at the same time, they also joined the KMT. This, as you could well imagine, was a recipe for disaster. But with Russian involvement and careful manipulation, things sort of worked out for a while, at least on the surface. Things look like they might work when Sun was alive. But once Sun Yat-sen passes unexpectedly so early in 1925, things just Things just went south from there between the CCP and the KMT, and also within the ranks of the KMT. Even they were bitterly split between the leftist and rightist factions. That was all about to end, and when we all come together next time, we're going to see the defining moment and what would be the beginning of the Chinese Civil War. With Guangdong, Guangxi, Hunan, Fujian, Jiangxi, Hubei, and Anhui, all under the control of the National Revolutionary Army, under Jiang Kai-shek's command, the focus now turned to Shanghai. The plan, you know, Shanghai was still controlled by the warlords. The plan was to attack from the west, you know, up the Yangtze River, moving east, and from the south, cutting up through Zhejiang province. Now, the Russians, who were represented, of course, by the Comintern agent Mikhail Borodin in China, they wanted to skip Shanghai and move north against Zhang Lin and take Beijing. But Jiang wasn't so sure he wanted to do that. It's said that Jiang cut a secret deal with the extravagant and powerful warlord Zhang Zolin. Zhang Zuolin was fervently anti-communist and didn't have any tolerance for their activities at all. And for a pleasure-loving general like Zhang Zoling, who loved pomp and ceremony and living like an emperor, there was no way he could see the communists as anything except a deadly threat. In April 1927, just as Jiang was about to unleash the Great White Terror, Zhang Zoling attacked the Russian embassy in Beijing and arrested a bunch of Chinese who had sought refuge there. Among them was none other than Li Dachau, who is... Credited, of course, as you remember, as a co-founder with uh, Chen Duxiu of the Communist Party, and he was once Chairman Mao's boss when they both worked at the library at Peking University. So Li Chao was executed, along with many others, rounded up in this political act. The big problem, as we'll see, is that Shanghai had become too radicalized. The labor unions had been, simply become too powerful and too unpredictable, Everywhere you turn, there was a strike or some sort of labor unrest. All kinds of demands were constantly being made to improve working conditions. The same battle organized labor has been fighting since the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution were now being fought in China. And the Zhongxin, or the center of this radicalism of the labor movement in China, was in the city of Shanghai. And into this whole soup, you could throw in all the foreigners who had huge, huge economic interests in China. These were the bad old days. Totally no regulation, or if there was, it could be disregarded for a price. Great profits came out of the foreign-owned textile mills, garment manufacturers, and you know factories producing all manners of baihua or general merchandise. These foreigners were all dependent on their Chinese agents and compradors for the most part. And these Chinese who managed all these businesses together with and in competition with foreigners, they were, by and large, all members of one secret society or another. And an entire universe operated right in front of the foreigners, but was unseen by them. Yeah, 1920 Shanghai. What a time that must have been, although I hear it's uh, pretty good right now, too. In April 1927... Jiang will make his move against the communists. And then that's it. No more pretending to get along. The gloves are off. No pretending to be friends with Russia, who they all knew was up to no good at all times and never had China's true best interests at heart. So next time we'll take a look at the events that began on April 12, 1927. This is when uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his minions turned on the communists and any and all labor union leaders, organizers, or any... Other leftists unlucky enough to get caught up in this secret ambush. This became known as the White Terror in China. That's all for next time. I'm off tonight. Back to historic Ningbo. I was with some officials from Ningbo recently, and Ningbo people are always proud to tell you that they have seven thousand years of history. This is because one of the most famous of the Neolithic cultures of China were the Hemudu who were traced back to 5,4500 BC. So that makes it about seven millennia. Now the Hemudu culture stretched from the city of Yuyao in the west to Zhoushan in the east. And this is that whole area that sort of skirts the southern part of Hangzhou Bay, including, of course, Ningbo. And Hangzhou Bay is the site of what's currently the longest bridge in the world, 22 miles, 35.67 kilometers So that's where I'm off tonight in checking the weather. I see nothing except 36 to 37 degree temperatures await me with a nice lubricating dose of Ningbo's famous humidity. Can't wait to go walk those factory floors. I'm going to try and get something out when I'm uh, in Hong Kong. I won't be traveling with my China history library, so maybe next time we'll just chit-chat and whatnot. We'll see. I don't know if any of you noticed, but I finally went live with that new website. So you can go groove on it at Chinahistorypodcast.com. Now you can see everything produced to date, including all the episodes I had to delete recently for reasons that are too boring and mundane to even get into. I'm not using a Mac uh, iWeb platform anymore for the website. I'm now using a WordPress platform, and I'm sure you'll find the website a lot more functional. Like Laszlo Montgomery himself, no frills or any, anything fancy that you don't need. No more QuickTime plugins needed. Everything from the first to the latest is recorded in MP3 format for your convenience. So go check it out if you're so inclined. You could also download the shows directly from the website, too. And that's it for now. This is your host and humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, coming to you from where else but the traditional and patriotic American town of Claremont, California, nestled against the coyote-rich foothills of the San Bernardino Mountains on the easternmost fringes of Los Angeles County. Join us next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.